Delighted that you're here, and I hope you brought your Bible with you this morning. And let's turn to the book of Matthew and make some studies again in the Gospels as we continue to talk about questions. The last two Sundays we've talked about questions that they're asked for varying purposes. Sometimes a question is seeking information we don't know. Sometimes a question is asked in response to another question that has been asked. And sometimes we're simply trying to provoke a thought by our question. We're not looking for an answer, we're just making someone think. And we made the point that Jesus asked and answered many questions. And so in our two previous studies, we've talked about the questions that Jesus asked. We won't go back through all of those, but we looked in the first lesson at a series of eight questions that Jesus asked. Questions like, what do you more than others? Or the question of, what do you want me to do for you? And a host of other questions. And then in the second one, we looked at a series of eight more, like, do you see anything? Where is your faith? And do you also want to go away? And what is that to you? We looked at a series of eight questions there. But not only did Jesus ask questions, we want to shift gears and talk about Jesus answering questions. And so we want to look at two parts this morning and tonight, look at eight questions each. Questions that Jesus answered. Now, we've looked at what Jesus asked and he was waiting for someone else to answer. But this time someone asked Jesus a question and he gave an answer to that. And so we're going to look at the question, the context, we'll look at the answer he gave and then what we learned from that, what that may benefit us. So here's the first question, starting in Matthew chapter 13. The first question, that not the first question that he was asked necessarily, because there were a number of questions, uh, well over a hundred questions that he was asked, and we're only going to pick out eight this morning and eight for our study this evening. But this question in Matthew 13 is, why do you speak in parables? Why do you speak in parables? That's verse 10 of chapter 13. Well, let's start by looking at the context of that because that's always important. What prompted that question? And so in chapter 13, Jesus is speaking in parables in this context. Now, we won't go through all of those, but for example, there is the speaking of the parable of the sower or the parable of the saws, depending on how you view that, verses 1 to 9. There are other parables scattered throughout chapter 13. There's the parable of the wheat and tares. There's the parable of the leaven, the parable of the mustard seed, pearl of great price. So Jesus was doing a lot of teaching in parables, and he had just spoken the parable of the sower. Now at verse 10, the disciples asked him, they came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? That's a good question, isn't it? Now you're speaking in parables, why, why are you speaking in parables and why are you talking about the sower went forth to sow and you tell all of that story to make a point? Why don't you just tell them that? Why do you speak in parables? So let's look at his answer and see what he said. First of all, let's define parable because the word parable is important in understanding why Jesus would use that. The word parable just simply means to cast along beside, a placing beside or a comparison. In other words, you take a very familiar circumstance and lay beside that the truth you want someone to see, and because of this familiar circumstance, then they easily can see that which is the truth. 
For example, the parable of the sower. The sower goes forth to sow, and some seed is going to fall by the wayside. Some's going to fall on rocky ground. Some's going to fall among the thorns, and some's going to fall among the good ground. And therefore, there's going to be different fruit. Not because the seed's different, but because the soil is different. So you take that familiar story and lay it beside something you want them to see. Now let's go back to the context. He gives two reasons for speaking in parables. Let's start at verse 11. He answered the question by saying this, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has to him much more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull, and the ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and lest they understand with their heart in turn, and I should heal them. Now what did Jesus just say? He just said there are two reasons why the parables are spoken. They're spoken so that those who want to see will see clearly, like the parable of the sower. They can now clearly see. I understand now how seed is sown on different kinds of soil, and because of the soil, therefore, it produces or doesn't produce the fruit. Now I see that. But Jesus goes on to say those who don't want to see it won't get the point. They wonder, what on earth is this about a man sowing and some of it fell this way and some... I don't know what he's talking about. They don't get the point. Jesus said, that's why I speak in parables. Now let's begin at verse 16. In 16 through 17, he talks about how the opportunity is great. But blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears they hear. Assuredly, I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. In other words, this is a great opportunity for you to see and clearly understand the revelation of God, which even the prophets did not fully understand. So why do you speak in parables, Jesus? For these two reasons, I'm speaking in parables. Now let's make some application of that. What do I learn from that? I'll learn this, that parables make a point easy to see and to understand. So whether we're talking one of the parables of Jesus, like that of the sower, which is in our context, or the wheat and the tares, or whatever it may be, or the pearl of great price, that makes the truth that's trying to be displayed in the, in the revelation of God easier for me to comprehend. But because that's true, then we might give a parable or a parallel or an illustration when we try to teach someone an illustration or a parallel can make the truth easily seen. So you're trying to explain something to someone. You're trying to teach them the gospel. And you say, they're not seeming to get the point. Draw a parallel. Draw some kind of comparison. Give some kind of illustration of your point so that they can see that point and therefore they grasp the truth. What a practical thing to learn. Here's something else. I'm learning that those who desire to know will see clearly. Let's go to John chapter 7. That was the point Jesus was making in Matthew chapter 13. Then when I speak in parables, those who really want to see the truth will get the point. And John 7 makes that very point in verse 17. Let's read John 7 in verse 17. Here's what Jesus said. He said, and if anyone wants to do his will, 
He shall know the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. What's his point? If someone really wants to understand and they have a sincere heart of trying to grasp for the truth, they will be able to clearly see the truth. They'll understand the point. But furthermore, there will be those that are blind and they can't see. Something as simple as is baptism for the remission of sins, if they don't want to see that, they can read Acts 2.38 all day long and they never see the point. And someone who says, I don't really believe Jesus is the Son of God, they can read John 5 all day long and they never see the point. Someone who says, I don't believe the world was created in six days, they can read Genesis 1 and 2 and they'll never see the point. Why? Because they're blind, they can't see and they don't want to see. And I'm learning that when Jesus answered the question, why do you speak in parables? Let's go to another question he was asked. He was asked one time by his own disciples in Matthew chapter 18. So let's turn there and here was the question in verse 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, that's an interesting question. Let's put it in its context now. The disciples had a literal materialistic view of the kingdom. In other words, when Jesus would foretell of the coming of the kingdom and I will establish my kingdom, their concept was he's talking about a literal kingdom on earth where there's going to be an earthly reign. He's going to sit on a literal throne. That's their idea of a kingdom. So when they're asking about that kind of kingdom, they were arguing among themselves, according to Matthew, or Mark 9 and verse 33, the parallel account, they were disputing among themselves, and Jesus asked him, what were you arguing about? He knew, but he wanted them to have to tell. Well, we were arguing about and we were disputing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. In other words, who has the most prominent position? Who's going to sit on your right hand and who's going to sit on your left hand? You see, the right hand would be more prominent. Who's going to get that and who's going to get bumped over to the left hand? And then who's going to have another position that is neither right nor left, but another position in your kingdom? Who's going to get that? Who do you view as the greatest in your kingdom? And so they were wondering who would have those prominent positions. And so what they ask at verse 1, read again at verse 1, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus was offended by that question. So let's see what he said. Here was the answer that he gave. Verses 2 and 3 now, he illustrates with the humility of a child. Now get the question. They're arguing among themselves, according to Mark's account, and Jesus says, what were you arguing about? And they had to fess up. So, well, we were arguing and, and disputing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so our question to you is then, who is the greatest? And instead of saying, well, I think it's going to be this disciple or that disciple, he set a little child in their midst. You think how small this child must have seemed in the midst and surrounded by 12 grown men. Now at verse 3, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you be converted and become as little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He illustrates humility of a little child in the midst of grown men. And then notice what he says, that you must change your attitude or you'll never even be in the kingdom. When he says, except you be converted, he's not talking about except you repent and be baptized, you're not going into the kingdom. That had to be done, but that's not his point. In other words, your attitude is you're wanting to know who is the greatest in the kingdom and you're vying for power and you have arrogance in your heart and your mind. If you don't change, you won't even be in the kingdom, much less have prominent places in it. 
You've got to make a change in your life. And you've got to become like this little child. Now in verse 4, there's this great need for humility. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The answer was not what they were expecting. Perhaps they were expecting him to say, I think Peter's probably going to be at the right hand. Or maybe John, the disciple whom he loved, maybe he gets at the right hand and Peter's on the left hand. One of those two probably are going to be the prominent person. They were not expecting this answer about humility, a lesson about humility. Then I want you to notice in the parallel account, let's turn over to Mark 9, the parallel account to this. Matthew doesn't record this, but in Mark chapter 9 and in verse 35, Jesus says that if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. What's his point? Those who are first and those who are last are going to be opposite. Whoever puts himself forth as first, with arrogance, is going to be demoted to last. And the one that puts themselves down in humility is going to be promoted to be first. You want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom? It's the one who humbles himself in the kingdom of God. That was not the answer they were expecting. And let's make some application now from this answer to the question. I'll learn from that. There's a need for humility. We need to be reminded of that. We might be like the disciples at times, wondering we probably have never asked, who's the greatest in the church? But we might be wondering at times, I wonder who is probably the most beneficial person or who, who does more for the Who does more in the local church than anyone else? I wonder who teaches. I wonder who, who is more influential. I wonder who gives more. And maybe we're wondering who is the one who is the most, most important person in the local church. And Jesus would give us a lesson on humility. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. To tie another passage with that, we need a dose of humility at all times. Look at verse 5 and 6 of 1 Peter chapter 5. Likewise, you younger, be, submit yourselves to your elders. Likewise, all of you be submissive to one another. There's a sense in which we all submit to one another in service. That requires humility. For he says, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Here's something else I'm learning. I'm learning that greatness is not in power, but in humble service. So greatness is not seen in being promoted to some, some uh, office. Greatness is not being used more than someone else. Greatness is not in being before everyone else. Greatness is seen in humble service to the Lord. That's where greatness is seen. But here's another question. Let's go to Matthew 19 now. We've been in 13, 18. Now let's go to the 19th division. In Matthew 19 in verse 3, the question was, is it lawful to divorce for any reason? Now that wasn't a question Jesus asked others, but that was what some of his enemies asked him. Is it lawful to divorce just for any reason? Now let's look at the context and see why that question may have been asked. Look at verse 3, the, uh, of, uh, uh, verse 3 of chapter 19. The Pharisees also came to him testing him, what the text says, and saying, is it lawful to divorce for just any reason? Some discounted the question and kind of brushed it aside as an unimportant question because it was not asked sincerely. I'm not interested in whether the question was sincere. I'm interested in whether the answer was sincere, and it has to be because it came from Jesus. But they came testing him. Now, I want you to notice at verse 3 what the question was whether it was legit, whether it was with the pure motive, 
The question was about divorce. It was not about divorce and remarriage. It was about divorce. The question was, is it lawful to divorce for any reason? The question was not, is it lawful to divorce and then get remarried for any reason? But is it lawful to divorce just for any reason? Now let's go back to verse 3. They were testing him. Perhaps they're trying to get Jesus to side with one of the rabbinical schools. They had Deuteronomy 24 in mind. You say, how do you know? Because when Jesus answers the question, the first thing they did was try to pit him against Deuteronomy 24 and their misunderstanding of Deuteronomy chapter 24. We'll come back to that in a moment. So it seems that they're trying to pit him against one of the rabbinical schools because they had opposite thoughts with reference to what Deuteronomy 24 had to say. Some thought Deuteronomy 24 was saying you can get a divorce for any reason, and others said, oh, no, no, it's not just any reason. It had to be for some uh, immoral thing like maybe fornication. That's what Deuteronomy 24 is about, they thought. So if they can pit him against one of those, they're at least pitting him against one group, and so they have stirred up some enemies toward Jesus, and that's all they're interested in. But I'm more interested in his answer. Let's begin at verse 4. What Jesus did in answer to the question was give four reasons why you can't divorce just for any reason. Let's see what they are. First of all, beginning at verse 4, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? God made one man for one woman for life. The answer to your question is, can he divorce just for any reason? The answer is no. He's not through. He goes further and says in verse 5, for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. He should cleave to his wife. Mean to be glued to her. So therefore your answer to your question is no, you can't divorce just for any reason. Here's a third thing. Look at verse 5. The two shall become one flesh. One is the only number as far as people are concerned you can't divide. And then the fourth reason given in verse 6, God has joined them together. Now what Jesus is doing here is the very same thing he did in John chapter 7. You say, what are you talking about in John 7? Do you remember the two disciples that came to Jesus and said, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus could have said, yes, I am the coming one, but he didn't do that. What he did was immediately work a miracle and said, go tell John what you've seen and heard. Why didn't he answer the question? He didn't answer the question by giving evidence from which they were to draw the conclusion. So that's what Jesus did here. He didn't say, well, no, you can't divorce just for any reason. He didn't say the word no, but he gave four reasons from which they were to draw that conclusion. No, you can't get a divorce for any reason for these following reasons. Now then, I want you to notice at verses 7 and 8, the Pharisees then ask about Deuteronomy 24. Go to verse 7. Why then did Moses command to give the certificate of divorce? They got the answer to the question. They understood those four things you just said, Jesus, means the answer is no, you can't get a divorce just for any reason. And if that's what you say then, tell me why did Moses command to give the writing of divorcement? Moses didn't command to give the writing of divorcement, but they said he did. But I want you to notice what Jesus did. Look at verse 8. He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. They asked about Deuteronomy 24, but he pointed back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. Then Jesus states what his law says. Look at verse 9, that he, his law gives only one exception. 
and that is, except it be for fornication. Now, how did Jesus answer the question? No, you can't get a divorce just for any reason. Well, but, but you're against Moses. No, 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 no. Let's go back to the very beginning. God had one man for one woman for life, just like I just did at verse 4. And then he said, but there is one exception in Matthew chapter 19 in verse 9. Now, let's make some application of that. What do we learn from that? I'm learning from that that marriage is permanent and it's serious. We need to teach our children from a young age that marriage, because it is a permanent circumstance that cannot be ended at will, cannot be ended just for any cause, that it's a serious circumstance in which you enter. That means you enter into a marriage relationship. You cannot get out of that marriage relationship unless someone has committed sin. It's a serious circumstance. Furthermore, I'm learning from this that you cannot divorce just for any cause. And some have the idea, well, I can divorce. I'm not going to remarry. I know I can't do that. But I can divorce for any reason I want to as long as I don't remarry. The question was about divorce, and Jesus said, no, 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 no. Here's something else I'm learning from this, that there is one scriptural cause for divorce, and that's the cause of fornication. It's the only one mentioned in the whole context, the whole Bible for that matter. Let's go to another question. Here's question number four, chapter 21 now. Let's go two or three chapters over. And the question this time in Matthew chapter 21 is, by what authority do you do these things? It's a good question, isn't it? By what authority do you do these things? Now let's look at the context and see if we can understand. Beginning at verse 12 now, before we get to the question at verse 23, beginning at verse 12 through verse 17, Jesus had cleansed the temple for a second time. Remember he did it early in his ministry and now he's doing it again at the end of his ministry. Having drove the money changers out of the temple and having cleansed the temple, now verse 23, then when he came to the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? So what prompted the question? Well, he was teaching, and they have that in mind. But more importantly, he drove out the money changers in the temple, and he had drove them out with authority. And we want to know who gave you this authority, and by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you that authority, by the way? So let's see what he did in answer to that. Here's the first thing I want you to see in answer to that. Notice that he is responding with a question. Now let's get the question, then we'll come back to the statement made on the screen before you. Now look at verse 23. They confronted him. as about what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. Remember, we've made the point repeatedly. Sometimes a question is an answer to another question. Jesus does that here. So what's his question? The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or of men? You answer that question for me. Here's what his question is saying. He responded with a question as if he is saying, if you want to talk about authority, let's talk about authority. I just drove out the money changers. I've been teaching in the temple. And you're asking me a question about authority. I really don't think you're interested in authority. Do you want to talk about authority? Let's talk about authority. I got a question for you. I want to know about the baptism of John. Was it of heaven or was it of men? 
that. Notice at verse 25, and they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? And if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all counted him as a prophet. What about the baptism of John? Was it of heaven or of men? Which was it? That's a simple question. It's either of heaven or men. It's one or the other. You answer that question. And I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. And notice now at verse 27, they answered and said to him, we do not know. The King James says, we cannot tell. And he said, well, neither will I tell you by the authority by which I do these things. You're not too interested in authority, in other words. They said, we can't answer. Now, they're not really interested in authority, are they? Or they would have responded to that saying, you know what? The, the, the baptism of John, that was from the authority that came from God, and we need to embrace that. They're not interested in authority. They're asking about authority, but they're not interested in authority. And furthermore, he had demonstrated to them by giving them evidence concerning the baptism of John and furthermore, the authority by which he had done these things. He had worked miracles. So why didn't he tell them by what authority? Because he's already shown them and they've ignored that. That's why he ignored the question. Well, let's make some application of what we just learned. One thing I'm learning is we must have respect for the authority of God. The Pharisees and the chief priest and the elders are coming to Jesus and asking a question as if they do have respect. For, like we, we recognize we've got to have respect for authority. And we do respect it. They didn't respect authority. And Jesus demonstrates that to them that they didn't have respect for authority. Here's something else I'm learning from that. That if the source is not of God, then it must be of man. And that's what he just asked him, is it of, of heaven or of men? Is it, if it's from God or from men, which is it? The baptism of John, which is it? One or the other. And if it's not from God, it must be of men. So when we begin to raise questions, where is the authority for, and you fill in the blank, if we cannot cite evidence from God that it's from God, then it must be of men. So where is the authority for this pattern of worship that we can't find in the scriptures? I can't find evidence that it's got to be of men. Where's the authority for the church to do, and you fill in the blank, whatever it may be, if I can't find book, chapter, and verse, then it's got to be of men. It's one or the other. It's either from God, found here, or it's from men. Simple thing to learn, isn't it? There's something else I'm learning from this context. The dilemma to answer, if a matter is from God, is then why don't you accept that? And they recognize that. They said, you know what, if we say it's from God, the next question he's going to ask us, why didn't you accept it? And if you've seen something that you know to be from God, the next question is, why don't you accept it? Maybe there's something you're not practicing. Maybe there's something you're not doing. The question is, does that come from God or from me? And you say, well, it's from God. Well, then why aren't you practicing it? And if it's from God, why don't you believe it? Why don't you embrace it? That's the next question, isn't it? What a dilemma that puts you in. You say, well, it's from God, but I'm not doing that. Well, why aren't you doing that? The Pharisees recognize that. Let's go to another question. Number five. Chapter 22 now, is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar? On the surface, if you've never read that, which you have, I know, but assuming that perhaps someone is reading the New Testament for the first time, that would seem like a tough question for Jesus to answer. How's he going to answer this one? Let's go to chapter 22 and look at the context. Is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar? Beginning at verse 15 now through verse 46 through the end of the chapter. There is an exchange with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
Ban exchange, there is an exchange of questions and response, argumentation and response. So Jesus is somewhat having a discussion or debate with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which didn't agree, by the way. And we'll see more about that in this context. There was an attempt to ensnare him or test him, according to verse 15. Look at verse 15. Then the Pharisees plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. Perhaps the parallel account in Luke 20 would enhance our understanding. So look over at Luke 20, beginning at verse 20. And they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize him on his words in order to deliver him to the power of the authority of the governor. And so they came to him saying, teacher, you rightly uh, teach and you do not show favoritism. And then they asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesars? They buttered him up, told him what a great teacher he was. Now answer this question. So they're trying to ensnare him. In fact, they'd sent spies trying to catch him in his words. So they've got something to go and deliver him to the authorities. Now verse 17. Verse 17 now back in Matthew's account is the dilemma of the question. Look at verse 17. Tell us therefore what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now here's the dilemma. If he says you should pay taxes, that upsets the people because they didn't want to pay taxes to Caesar. Caesar was corrupt, by the way. But if you say, don't pay your tax, he's in trouble with Rome. We've got him either way he goes. If he says, pay the tax, the people are going to be upset. And if he says, don't pay the tax, Rome will be upset. We don't care about that. But Rome, and we'll report him to Rome, and he's in trouble. Either way he goes. We've got him. How did he answer? Interesting that he said, first of all, verse 18, you're nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. He perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Well, of course, he could read the hearts and the mind of man, John chapter 2. He knew they were hypocrites. He knew they were testing him. But he asked them to show him the money. Look at beginning at verse 19. His answer was, whose image and inscription is on it? Show me the coin. Now, whose image or inscription is on that coin? And they answer, well, it's Caesar's. And so his answer was, this simple. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. That's not what they were expecting. That's the Im image of Caesar? Well, then give it to Caesar because that's his. And render to God the things that are God's. Now, let's make some application. What do we learn from his answer to that? I'm learning a very important principle. Paying tax to a corrupt government is right. There is a select few of Christians who have argued that it's wrong and sinful for us to even pay tax if the government is corrupt because that means we're supporting corruption. And so you shouldn't pay tax, even if you have to pay the penalty for it or whatever it may be. And yet Caesar was as corrupt as could be, and Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay your tax. Go ahead and pay your tax. Well, what about Caesar being corrupt? He pay your tax. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Romans 13 was written in the context of a corrupt government. More corrupt than perhaps we are experiencing now. And you are to render your tax. To whom tax is due. And custom to whom custom is due. So paying tax to a corrupt government is right for those who so pay the tax. Let's go back to Romans 13 at least in principle and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2 just to add to that. There is respect and obedience that is due. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, one of the things Romans 13 said 
that we are to render obedience to Caesar, to the government. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2 to see this point. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. That yes, one of the things to be rendered to Caesar, look beginning at verse 13 now. Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, would the, would the, would the king be corrupt? No doubt he was. Or to the governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God that you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, render your obedience and submission to the civil government. And then here's something else I'm learning. An apparent dilemma may not be a dilemma at all. Sometimes someone tries to ask you a question and they think they put you in a dilemma where you can't answer. Either way you go, they've got you trapped. And, and you don't, I don't know how to answer that. Sometimes an apparent dilemma is not a dilemma at all. If we pay tax, then, uh, uh, then that's going to put us in conflict with the people. And if we don't pay tax, we're in trouble with Rome. And Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. There was no dilemma at all. Question number six. Chapter 22, same chapter. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? They thought they had Jesus again. Context. Well, the context is that same exchange between the Pharisees and the Sadducees beginning at 15 through 46. And the Sadducees, now notice with me at verse 23. The Sadducees says there is no resurrection to come. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And yet Jesus had been teaching concerning a resurrection. So they pose a circumstance in a situation of a woman being married to seven brothers, which was a legitimate circumstance. So here's what they say. They said, teacher, Moses said that if a man dies and uh, having no children, his brother should raise up his wife and raise up offspring to his brother. Well, that was true. And there were, there were seven brothers, and the first one died, and then the second one, and then the third, and then the fourth, and finally she's married all seven. So she keeps marrying all the brothers until she's married to the seventh. Now then, notice what their question was at verse 28. Having posed that circumstance, therefore in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Who's she going to be married to? Which one of the seven? How do you, how do you figure that one out? I mean, do you, is it the first one, or is it the last one? Or is it some of the ones in between? Or she married to all of them? They thought they had him in a dilemma. What on earth are you going to do with that question, Jesus? So here's what he said. Here was his answer. He said, you're ignorant or you don't respect the word. One or the other. Look at verse 29. Verse 29. He answered and said, you are mistaken not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. What's his point? You either do not know or understand or you are ignoring what you do understand. It's one or the other, I'm not sure which. Now notice at verse 30, we'll come back to verse 29. But verse 30, he said, here's what you're ignorant of. There is no marriage in the resurrection, that in the resurrection we neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of heaven. Then he goes further to indict the Pharisees, or, or the Sadducees, by showing evidence there is life beyond the grave. Notice his evidence that he cites. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read, he points to their ignorance. What was spoken by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now you take that and put it in syllogistic form, and what do you have? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are living, though physically dead. That's the only conclusion to draw. Now notice at verse 33, the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. 
How do you answer the question? You're either ignoring the scriptures or ignorant of it, or you don't respect the scriptures. They're, they're, you have a misunderstanding about the nature of the resurrection. And let me show you evidence that there is life beyond the grave. Now then, let's make some application to that answer. What do we learn from that? I'm learning there are two reasons for error. Someone who goes off into error, there's two reasons for that. Number one, it may be they just don't know. They're ignorant of the scriptures. They don't know. They haven't read. They haven't studied. And so because they're ignorant, they can easily be led into error. 2 Peter 3 makes that point, verses 17 and 18. Or it may be they don't respect. In other words, they don't believe what the word says. It's not that they're ignorant. They just don't believe what it says. They don't have respect for the power of God or the authority of God. And here's something else I'm learning from that context. We will be alive and aware beyond the grave. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were well alive, though they were physically dead. And so beyond the grave, you're going to be well aware. And here's the third thing I learned from verse 30. I said we'd come back to verse 30. There are no family relationships in heaven. What does that mean? That means that we're going to enjoy the bliss of heaven with or without family. Sometimes the concept is if if my family's not going to heaven, I don't want to go. I don't think I could enjoy heaven without my mama there or without my aunt there or without my brother there, or whoever it may be. And I'm learning that there is no family relationships in heaven. And from that I'm learning that you can enjoy the bliss of heaven with or without your family. Your family may not make it. Your family may not be faithful. They may not have been submissive to God. And you can enjoy the bliss of heaven without your family. I'm learning that from Luke chapter 16 as well as Matthew chapter 22. Question number 7, chapter 26 now. Tell us if you are the Christ. Tell us if you are the Christ. Go to Matthew chapter 26. That is obviously in the context of Jesus being on trial. He's before the Sanhedrin. That discussion begins at Matthew 26 verse 57 through verse 63. And... In the trial before the Sanhedrin, they had asked a question earlier. Look at verse 61 and 62. They said, this fellow has said he was able to destroy the temple and build it again in three days. And the high priest said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it that they they testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. So in the trial, they had asked questions and there's times you don't even answer. Jesus ignored questions at times. He didn't respond to that. So they ask him another question at verse 63. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Is that who you claim to be? Tell us if you're the Christ. So let's see what he did in answer to that. This time he answered and he said at verse 64, in essence, yes. Because he said, it is as you have said. In other words, what you just described is true. The Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he went further. Notice it, verse 64. Verse 64, he said, nevertheless. In other words, let me add this point. Let me say what this means. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you'll see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Here's what that means. You ask me, am I the Christ, the Son of the living God? And yes, I am. Y'all are trying to put me to death. And beyond this, you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of God. That's a prophecy, really, of his resurrection. 
You're trying to put me to death and I'm going to be raised from the dead. Let me show you what that means that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice now beginning at verse 65 through verse 68, the reaction was, this man is guilty as blasphemy, he's worthy of death. Let's kill him and put him to death. Let's go back to the question. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And he said, yes. But let me tell you what that means. Let me tell you the implication thereof. So let's make some application of that. Here's the first thing. I'm learning that Jesus is the Son of God. He's deity. He's not just a special man. He didn't just have special powers. He's deity. He's deity himself. Furthermore, verse 64, as we've already pointed out, it's not just a concept that we believe or accept. It has meaning and application. In other words, it's not just theory. Okay, he's the Son of God. But what does that mean? And here's what it means is he mentioned in verse 64. Let's go one more time, Matthew chapter 24 this time. Let's back up a couple of chapters. The question this time is, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Matthew chapter 24. What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Let's put that in its context. Verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 24, Jesus had just announced the destruction of Jerusalem. There is not one stone setting here that not be standing on top of the other. In other words, this whole city and this whole temple and all of it's going to be destroyed, he had just announced. That prompted a question. They asked two questions which they really thought of as being one. When shall these things be? That's the first. And thinking that if this is all destroyed, that's got to be the end of the world, they asked a second question, which they thought was really the same as the first. What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You announce the destruction of Jerusalem. When's all that going to happen in the, wor in the world going to end? When's all that going to happen? So let's see what Jesus said in answer to that. He answered it in two parts. First of all, verses 4 to 34. That's a whole study within itself, but we're going to look at the brief picture of that. Beginning at verse 4, he answers the first question. And that is, he begins to talk about things that will precede the destruction of Jerusalem, which he had just announced in verse 2. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars, verse 6. Nation will rise against nation. Verse 9, there'll be tribulation. There'll be false prophets to rise up, verse 10. There's going to be all kinds of things that develop. And then there will be this desolation of uh, abomination of desolation, verse 15, which Daniel had talked about, the destruction of Jerusalem. Now let's drop down to verse 29. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation in those days, the sun will be darkened. In other words, there's going to be great changes take place. Now let's drop down to verse 33. So you, the people listening to the question, when you, the people who'd ask the question, see all these things, you'll know it's at the very doors. Concerning the answer of the question, or an answer to the question, when will these things be? Some of you standing here will see these things happen. Now look at verse 34. Assuredly, I say that no, this generation will by no means pass until all these things be fulfilled. In other words, this is going to happen while some people now living are, are still living, that is in the day of Jesus, they'll see the destruction of Jerusalem. But now he shifts gears beginning at verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass by any means. Look at verse 36. But of that day, that is the heaven and earth passing away, the end of time, which they ask about it, verse 3. But of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. 
What about the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, it's going to be signs pointing to that, and it's going to happen in your lifetime. What about the end of the age? No one knows when that's going to come. Those are two separate questions, he said. Now, what's going to happen in the meantime? Well, as it was in the days of Noah, verse 38, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the flood came. In other words, there's not going to be the sign showing it's immediately coming. So let us learn some things from that by way of application. Here's what I'm learning. I'm learning that signs would point to the nearing of the destruction of Jerusalem. Those signs that are discussed in Matthew 24 are not pointing to the second coming of Christ. Here's something else I'm learning from this context. There are no signs pointing to the nearing of the end of time. Our premillennial friends think there are signs that point to the coming of the end of time. So when a war breaks out in the Mideast, it's about to end. When there's an earthquake, this may be one of the signs. When a false prophet rises up and everyone recognizes he's a false prophet, that's the sign of the end of times. When nation is rising against nation, that's the sign of the end of times. Not so. Concerning the end of time and the second coming, we don't know when that'll be. Concerning the end of time and the second coming, we don't know when it's about to happen. We're not going to get any kind of sign that says, you know what, it's on the horizon. It's just around the corner. There's not going to be any warning that it's getting closer. That we're closer now than we were, and so we're within a year now of it happening, or a month or, or a few days. And what we're going to be doing, according to verse 38, is going about our normal daily activities, marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking, whatever you normally do in life, that's what will be going on if Christ comes in your lifetime. What's the sign of your coming and the end of the age? There is no sign of that. There is no sign of that. There is no prediction of that. There is no foretelling of that in the sense that we know it's going to happen within a month or within a week or we know it's just around the corner. There is none of that. Jesus not only asked questions, Jesus answered a lot of questions. Time would forbid us to notice all of those questions. So what kind of questions did he answer? Like, why do you speak in parables? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? Is it lawful to divorce just for any reason? By what authority do you do these things? And is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar? Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Tell us if you're the Christ. What's the sign of your coming at the end of the age? That's just eight of some hundred and something questions that Jesus was asked. And we'll look at eight more of those in our study this evening. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?